Before you listen to this episode, I do have a quick clarification over something you're going to hear in this episode. Prior to recording this episode, I was told that the tribal name has two accepted pronunciations in English, and I picked the one that I thought was correct or was acceptable. And then when I did pronounce it, even that, I kind of messed it up. The thing with this that I have since learned, thank you to a listener named Mark, who kindly got on the phone with me and gave me some of his time, and we talked over it so that I could hear what I was supposed to be saying. The T or the K at the beginning are both added in English. The word actually has a letter, a sound that doesn't exist in English. So it's an unvoiced L-like sound. So in English, we have adapted two of our unvoiced sounds, the T or the K, to the L to then make something somewhat close to the word, very anglicized. And I opted for the more anglicized version when I really shouldn't have. That is on me and my research. I have heard that Klinkit is the more preferred and more common and more correct pronunciation. I apologize for not doing my due diligence to figure out which pronunciation was the closest to what I should have been saying when I decided what direction to go with it. I know I mispronounce words all the time. I always try to get it right, but sometimes what I hear, process, and say doesn't line up with what is actually being said. I can't apologize for that every week because it's usually an accident, but this one was a choice and I made the wrong one. So I do want to say I'm sorry and I want to thank Mark again for getting on the phone with me to help me with the pronunciation. I asked him what I should do with this episode. Should I take it down? Should I re-record it? Should I try to insert the correct pronunciation, even though every single time you hear it, it'll not sound right because I recorded them at different times? And he suggested that I leave the episode up, I preface it, I explain it, I apologize, and then when you listen to the episode, just know I am saying it wrong, and I am sorry. I want to send big birthday shout-outs to two of my Patreon supporters. I want to say happy birthday to Anthea and to Angie. I hope you guys are having a wonderful birthday month. In January 2016, Linda Skeek disappeared from her home in Anchorage, Alaska. The state pursued a rare no-body murder trial in her case. But before the trial occurred, Linda's sister-in-law, Shirley Skeek, also went missing. The cases are not linked except by the grief of a family who has lost so much. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines, or welcome back if you are new. Especially if you're new, let me explain this episode a little bit. Both Linda and Shirley Skeek were Alaska Native women, and whenever I cover cases involving Indigenous victims, I open with some history before we get into the cases. Native people around the world are more than just their tragedies. And heaven knows we didn't learn enough Indigenous history in school anyway. 
I always have to do a lot of reading for these episodes because I learned Native American history only in the broadest of terms. And sometimes, as I realize now, with a healthy dose of racist stereotypes included, and probably in no instance more than the Alaska Native experience. The land of the Native people of the very Northwest Pacific area covers present-day Alaska, the Yukon Territory, and British Columbia. So using the term Alaska Native is already defining the people by modern political lines. And for me, at least, I think it tends to obscure the more important definition of any group, and that is its culture. There are over two dozen groups of people who fall under the heading of Alaska Native people, and it is divided primarily by language. And within these cultural groupings, there are a number of tribes. Linda Skeek was born Linda Sherman, and she was Tlingit, as was her sister-in-law, Shirley. Tlingit means people of the tides, which is fitting. I wish this was a video so I could show you a map. But if you picture Alaska, you probably picture the large part that borders the Yukon Territory. But there is that thin strip with a whole bunch of islands nearby that dips along the edge of British Columbia. This is the area where Juneau is located. That area is the Tlingit land. Alaska is unlike the lower 48 states in that it only has one reservation. And the way tribes hold land is different than it is for the Native American tribes in the lower 48. It would honestly take a lot to explain this fully, and I'm not the historical expert we need right now to break it down. But basically, overview, Alaska Native people and the indigenous people of the lower 48 had their lands taken and allotted under different laws. The Indian Appropriations Act, which set up the reservation system, occurred before the U.S. bought Alaska from Russia. And then when the Dawes Act occurred, which split up the reservations into land allotments for Native American individuals, it didn't apply to Alaska. Alaska Native communities do live together in designated villages, and the Tlingit tribal villages are all still in the same area of their ancestral lands. As colonizers started to notice the rich natural resources of the land, the Tlingit and Haida people, the Haida whose ancestral lands are covered in cedar forests, realized that they had power in numbers, which is something we have seen happen in the lower 48 as well. So the Tlingit and the Haida people joined to form the Central Council of the Tlingit and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska. So this is a tribal government that represents over 32,000 Tlingit and Haida folks, whether they live in a village, whether they live elsewhere in Alaska, or anywhere else in the world. They have a beautiful website, which I will link in the show notes for everyone to go learn more about the Tlingit and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska. 
And this month's donation will go to their efforts to help the community of Haines, which has been devastated by catastrophic mudslides. So with the website to the council, I will also leave a direct link to the donation page in the show notes in case you would like to join me in donating to the community of Haines. Linda Sherman, the first person we're going to talk about tonight, she grew up in the Juneau area, so she grew up around the Tillinga people. But at the age of 14, she entered the foster care system. This is a traumatic event for any child, even if they end up in the best foster home possible, which Linda apparently did. Rena and Lenny Sims had around 300 foster children pass through their home in over 20 years as foster parents. Some stayed for a night and some stayed for years. They built their home to accommodate this huge family. They had 11 bedrooms, six bathrooms, and they had to have three refrigerators at all times. Rena told USA Today that when kids came into their home, the first thing they would tell them is that they're already on the kids' side. And Rena has seen kids come into her home abused, scared, angry, and everything else. Linda came into her home ready to be loved. She craved that close-knit family. Linda loved to draw and play with the other kids in the house. She was always telling jokes and doing their hair and just really trying to connect. She also loved to do projects and community service. Rena was always out doing some project in the community, and Linda loved to go with her. Rena's daughters, who were young adults themselves at this point, they started calling Linda Rena's mini-me. Linda was one of the foster children in the Sims home who connected and stayed connected with the family even after she grew up and moved out. Rena's daughters considered her their little sister, and Linda very much wanted to have a happy, stable, and permanent family of her own. She spoke regularly about wanting to get married as soon as she could, even when she was a teenager. When she was around 20 years old, Linda had a relationship that resulted in a pregnancy, but the two broke up, so it didn't end up being quite the happily ever after Linda was looking for. In around 2006, when Linda was 23, she married a man named Thomas Skeek. The relationship had moved so quickly that the Sims family didn't even know they had gotten married until two days after. Thomas was also Tlingit, so that may have actually been part of the appeal. Reconnecting to her family and her community through marrying Thomas. This is something not uncommon in foster care where kids are taken out of their indigenous communities and placed with non-native families. And marrying Thomas was a chance to reconnect. And Thomas was also ready for marriage. He had an apartment, he had a vehicle, and Linda really longed for that stability. 
And it's not to say that she didn't love Thomas or Thomas didn't love her. It's just to say it moved very quickly, and there may have been some other motivations that stem from the removal from her family. Linda learned a few months into the marriage that Thomas had been previously charged with sexual abuse of a minor in the second degree. He was 23 years old when he was charged, and based on the laws in Alaska, it looks like the victim would have been between the ages of 13 and 15 to qualify for this charge. The case was still pending when Linda and Thomas got married, and he hadn't told her about it. Linda was furious. Thomas ended up being found guilty of a lesser charge, attempted sexual abuse of a minor in the third degree. So from the start, Linda was not getting the stability in the marriage to Thomas that she had hoped for. The relationship was volatile, and it turned abusive. Linda did leave a few times, but they would reconcile with the usual promises of things getting better. And they went on to have two children together, and for the sake of those children and their stability, Linda really wanted to keep the family together. Linda's foster sisters told her to report the abuse but she worried Thomas would go to jail. She didn't want that for her kids. And her sister said that Thomas would use that in arguments to keep her from going to the police, basically saying, what good would it be for our kids to have me in jail? As the family life became less stable rather than more, Linda started drinking more heavily. She went to rehab a couple of times to try to get sober, but staying sober is always hard. Linda was what we refer to as a functional alcoholic. She took care of her kids, she excelled at her 9-to-5 job, but she still couldn't get her drinking fully under control. Linda worked with a large Alaska Native Regional Corporation, and Alaska Native Regional Corporations oversee the land claims of Native Alaskans, and they would be their own podcast just to explain them, how they came about, how they work. But the important thing for this episode to know is that these are among the most profitable businesses in Alaska, and this is a good place to work. This is a good, solid job. Linda Thomas and the kids moved to Anchorage for her job in mid-2015, which was 900 miles away from their families. The move and job brought more financial stability to the family, and Thomas was able to stay home with their two children. Linda's older daughter ended up staying in Juneau with her father when they moved. But the move did bring something Linda's family was worried about, and that's isolation. Linda didn't have her sisters or her friends nearby to call or to stay with when things with Thomas got rough. In the fall of 2015, shortly after their move, Things really were at the lowest point. Linda was drinking heavily on the weekends. 
And in November 2015, a CPS report was filed alleging that Linda pointed a gun at Thomas in the presence of one of their children. Later that month, Linda filed a protection order against Thomas, claiming he left bruises when he grabbed and pushed her during an argument. The two were separated at this point, and in this time, Linda started dating another man. When Thomas and Linda reconciled at some point before Christmas, Linda did not break off the relationship with the other man, but Thomas was also seeing someone else. With both of them having extramarital relationships, I almost wondered if this wasn't so much a reconciliation more than getting back together for the sake of finances or even the sake of the children. But everything out there does refer to this as a reconciliation. Linda then dropped the protection order against Thomas. On New Year's Eve 2015, 32-year-old Linda and 33-year-old Thomas took the kids to watch the fireworks downtown. It was really cold out, being, you know, winter in Alaska, so they had the kids all bundled up watching the Minions movie on a DVD player that they had inside their SUV. After the fireworks, Thomas drove Linda to a few bars. He dropped her off at the first bar around 9.30, and she called him later from a different nearby bar to pick her up. He got her and brought her to yet another place while he waited in the car with the children, and Linda went in for a bit, and then she came back out. He drove her to another place, and the same thing happened. They ended up arriving home around 1 a.m. When I first read this, I thought it was the oddest thing to go bar hopping while your family waited in the car. Why not just get dropped off at one place and just stay there, let your family go home, and then you can get picked up later? But then I remembered this was New Year's Eve, so it sounds to me like Linda was popping into one gathering or party, having a drink or two, and then going to the other to stop in, say hi, say Happy New Year to everyone. In the context of this being New Year's Eve, it just makes a lot more sense. After Linda made the rounds, the family went back home with the kids around 1 a.m., like I said, and Linda kept drinking vodka at home, according to Thomas. And then she decided she wanted to go back downtown to another bar. Thomas said he told her he was not going to let her drive, she was far too drunk, and he took the keys away from her. They argued a bit, and Linda stormed out. Thomas didn't know where she was heading, since they lived seven miles from downtown, and it was 2.30 in the morning when she left, which is pretty much closing time. On New Year's Day, Linda's foster family hadn't heard from her, which was incredibly unusual. Linda was the type who called for everything. She called every Christmas, every birthday, every Mother's Day. She was very, very thoughtful like that. So when the day came and went with no contact from Linda, Rena called the cell phone that Linda and Thomas shared, and Thomas answered the phone. He told Rena that Linda had left on New Year's Eve and he didn't know where she was. 
That didn't sound right to Rena, that Linda would have disappeared like that and not reached out to anyone. But Rena said okay, and she asked if she could speak to the kids on the phone, who were seven and five at the time, and Thomas said no. This immediately threw up a concern for Rena. Thomas, seemingly out of nowhere and for no valid reason, was refusing to let her talk to her grandchildren. So Rena started pushing him on where is Linda? Do you know where she is? Do you have any clue where she is? She was asking him to just be honest about what was going on, but his answers were vague and didn't really give her any confidence. So she asked him straight out, did you kill Linda? And Thomas answered, I didn't hurt her. And Rena said, that's not what I asked. And that's when Thomas denied killing Linda. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about Word Forest. It's my new favorite game on my phone. It is a word puzzle app and it is free. It's important to keep your body in shape. It's also important to keep your mind in shape. Word Forest is made for word search addicts. There are over 2,000 levels, and you connect the letters in any direction to form hidden word matches. It starts off pretty easy, and it gets harder as you get better. And Word Forest is a relaxing game. I like to play games on my phone before bed to kind of quiet my mind down and relax to go to sleep. But with most of them, I have to turn off the music because it's the opposite of relaxing. But with Word Forest, the sounds and the music are nature-inspired, so the game helps settle my mind down, and the music helps relax my body. It's also a neat way to grow your vocabulary. Any word you make as the levels get harder that you don't know what it means, you can click on it and it gives you the definition. Put yourself to the test with this fun and addicting brain game. Word Forest is offering 2,500 coins and 500 gems when you download and play. Stop mindlessly scrolling through social media and keep your mind sharp. Just go to the Apple or Google store and search for Word Forest. Download Word Forest for free today and get ready to flex your brain muscles. The weekend passed with no one having heard from Linda. So on the morning of Monday, January 4th, at Rena's insistence, Thomas reported Linda missing. The Anchorage police went out to the apartment around 10 a.m. to take the report. Thomas told the story about the fight and Linda walking out. He said she screamed at him to keep the kids, keep the car, and keep the home, and she left. Thomas told the police that Linda disappearing for a weekend wasn't new. He said Linda only drank alcohol, she wasn't into drugs, but over the last five years, she had gone on weekend benders probably around a hundred times. She always came home on Sunday nights to get ready for work. So when Linda didn't show up to go to work on Monday morning, Thomas figured it was best to report her missing. He said when Linda left, all she had on her was her ID. The couple only had one cell phone between them and he had it. All the debit and credit cards were accounted for. And... She didn't take her keys, obviously, because that's what started the fight, him taking them from her. 
with the missing persons report filed, pretty much nothing really happens for a few days. The investigation did not immediately start then and there. The report was taken, and that was about it. And you have to wonder if that is because Thomas reported that Linda regularly disappeared from the family home. They took him at his word. But Linda's family, birth and foster families, were all very concerned. They didn't believe Linda left her children and her job to run off somewhere. They were all aware of her issues with alcohol, but this was not something she had ever done, even at the worst points in her addiction. So Rena called Thomas again in the days after Linda was officially declared missing and asked him again if he killed Linda. And this time, according to Rena, he answered, I don't think so. When Rena hung up the phone with him, she called the police in Anchorage. It's not clear if Rena's call is what got the investigation finally started, but the timing is at least close enough that it seems like it at least played some role in it. On January 14th, 2016, 10 days after Linda was reported missing and two full weeks after she was last seen, the police went back to talk to Thomas and get another statement. They asked Thomas to give some more details about the night Linda went missing. And this is when he included about how they went to the fireworks, then they went bar hopping, which he said happened between 9.30 p.m. and 1 a.m. Some of this could be backed up with CCTV footage. In this interview, Thomas agreed to have the family cell phone searched, and it was digitally analyzed the next day. The first odd thing noticed as they looked at this phone, was that the call log from June 25th, 2015, all the way through January 5th, 2016, was completely gone. Someone had erased all calls logged since the couple had moved to Anchorage, and pretty much leading up to the day after Linda was reported missing. Linda's Gmail account had also been deleted. There were some texts that were left on the phone. There was a text on January 3rd from a friend saying something about how could Linda be active on Facebook when she was missing? And three days later, someone else texted about being happy Linda was home and no longer missing, possibly due to this Facebook activity. And that was another avenue the police could pursue. If Linda was accessing her Facebook, it meant she was alive somewhere. That same day the phone was being checked, someone else contacted the police, a man named Josh, and Josh was the man Linda was having an affair with. He told the police that he had met Linda at a bar when she was separated from Thomas in November 2015. He knew she was married, and he knew to call her at work. But if he did have to reach out to her on her cell phone, he would hang up if Thomas answered. Josh wanted to tell the police about the relationship and that he hadn't heard anything from Linda since New Year's Eve. Of course, the police were interested in Josh's alibi, which was 
easy because he was in jail at the time. It's about as airtight as it gets. And it really feels like once this investigation finally got started, the detectives tried to make up for the lost time because on the same day they talked with Thomas and Josh, they also spoke to a neighbor named Tanya. So the neighbor had an interesting and puzzling story to tell. Tanya lived across the road from the Skeeks, and she was leaving her home on December 31st when she drove by Linda walking. She said she stopped the car to call out a Happy New Year and offered Linda a ride. Linda told her no thank you and said she was going out to paint the town red. Tanya drove off and saw that Thomas was standing in the doorway of their home as Linda walked away. And this story sounds like it completely backs up what Thomas said happened. Except Tanya said this happened at 10.48 p.m. And she knew the time because she had looked at her clock. She was supposed to go pick up some friends as their designated driver, and she was running late. So she knew exactly what time she saw Linda. The issue with this is that Thomas and Linda were not, as far as the police can tell, home at this time. They were out doing this bar hopping thing. And even if they were home at this time and this was Linda walking off, this wasn't the last time they could verify she was alive. So this wouldn't have been the incident Thomas was talking about. So one possibility is that Tanya was mistaken. Linda had not lived there long. Tanya met her at a neighborhood barbecue over the summer, and they weren't friends. They were friendly neighbors. The person Tanya saw may not have been Linda. Another possibility is that Tanya does have the time wrong. She didn't see Linda when she left, but rather at a different time, like perhaps when she came home. But at this point in the investigation, taking this at face value, there is a witness seeing Linda walk away. And then they have the activity on her Facebook page. And those are promising signs that Linda did leave on her own and that she was okay. There was another promising sign when search warrants were obtained for bank records. There were transactions on Linda's account on December 29th and then nothing for about two weeks until they started again on January 11th. But this particular glimmer of hope did not last. They pulled security footage that showed it was not Linda accessing her bank account. It was Thomas. That wasn't the only thing to get the investigators' attention on bank records. Another account showed that Thomas purchased, after Linda's disappearance, cleaning supplies, including an industrial-sized container of Lysol disinfectant. So whereas the investigation first showed some signs that Linda was alive, it is now swinging in the other direction. If someone was accessing Linda's bank accounts after she went missing, it wouldn't be that big of a stretch to think that someone was accessing her Facebook. Two days after taking Thomas's phone, he called the detectives and asked about getting it back. 
they met with him to return the phone and took this opportunity to ask about Linda's Facebook, since it was the closest thing they had to signs of life left. Thomas said that Linda usually logged in at work where she had regular access to a computer. But then he mentioned that he had gone to her work and picked up some of her things, which included her tablet. So Thomas was basically admitting he had access to a tablet that she likely used for Facebook. He could have been the one who logged on, even if it was for a benign reason, like wanting to see if she was communicating with anyone about where she was. Accessing her Facebook itself isn't suspicious at all, but it does rule out that Facebook activity was a sign of life. Thomas also mentioned to the police at this point that Linda may have had about $40 on her when she left, but here they were over two weeks later, and $40 does not get you very far. Investigators also heard from another neighbor named Barbara. She lived directly above the Skeek family, and she said at some point in the overnight hours of New Year's Eve, She saw Thomas show up in a car she hadn't seen before. He went up to his apartment door and started banging on it and screaming at Linda, calling her names. Someone must have opened the door because Barbara could tell the argument had moved inside. She thought she heard Linda say something about a divorce, and then it sounded like things were being thrown. Suddenly, there was a loud thud as though someone had been shoved into the wall very hard. Barbara said it was hard enough that it rattled her wall and a photo fell off. Then Barbara didn't hear anything after that. As for why Barbara hadn't called the police over this fight that appeared to grow physical, it's because she had already called them once on account of an argument Linda and Thomas had gotten into. Afterwards, both of them asked her not to do that again and to essentially keep her nose out of their business. So that's what she did. The detectives took what they had, the purchases of cleaning supplies, no signs Linda was alive, and this odd story about her walking away, and put all of it in a probable cause affidavit to get a warrant for a search of the family's home and their vehicle. It was granted on January 19th and executed on the 20th. In the house, the investigators found blood in a few places, like the crawl space of the basement. There was blood near the entrance and on the vapor barrier, which is that plasticky stuff that keeps the basement dry. The blood would be tested and matched Linda. More of Linda's blood was found in the bathroom. It was on the baseboard molding, underneath the vanity, and on the threshold of the bathroom door. Using luminol, the police could see smears as well, where it appeared someone had cleaned up blood, including off of a light switch. Inside the dryer, the police saw clothes that appeared to have been heavily bleached. And on the family calendar on January 1st, it was written 
2.30 a.m., Linda walked off, like a reminder of the timeline Thomas had previously given. There was also what appeared to be blood on the passenger side of the vehicle, but they weren't able to match it to either Linda or Thomas. Another search warrant was issued, and this one was for Thomas's body. They wanted to see if there were any indications he had been in a fight. They found a healing human bite mark on his upper right arm, a bruise on the lower right side of his back, and a bruise on his hip. But this was three weeks after Linda went missing. Definitively tying any of these injuries to that time period would be impossible. This is something that would have been more compelling if the investigation started sooner, because Thomas denied the marks were from a fight with Linda. He insisted their arguments were verbal only and not physical, and because of this gap in time, the police could not prove otherwise. Another mark on Thomas's body that police were interested in was a three-inch long scratch on his back. They thought it looked consistent with going into the tight opening of the crawl space or possibly from backing out of it. The crawl space was viewed as a significant part of the home due to the blood. Linda's father, Doug Sherman, said he saw Thomas go into that crawl space after Linda's disappearance. The reason he gave at the time was that he was looking for a piece of artwork. The authorities believed at this point that Thomas had killed Linda during a fight and possibly put her body into the crawl space until he could later dispose of it. Or he at least stored evidence there. Thomas then cleaned the area, except he missed a few spots. He had three weeks from when Linda went missing until the police searched, and three weeks is a lot of time to clean up any scene from the state's perspective. Thomas was arrested and charged with murder and tampering with evidence. We've talked about no-body cases before and the statistics on them. They tend to fare better at trial, meaning more convictions, because the case has to be so much stronger to even get an arrest that by the time they make it to trial, they're usually very solid cases. The evidence we've gone over so far wasn't all the state had. Linda's children lived with her uncle at some point after Thomas was arrested. Their daughter, who was seven at the time, said she heard a loud thump on the night Linda went missing. She went downstairs to see what it was, and she saw her mother's feet in the bathroom with blood around them. The daughter, who I am going to call the pseudonym Anna because she was and still is a minor, had talked to the police before, and she did not mention this. What she did tell them prior to Thomas's arrest was actually quite different, and it does bring into question the reliability of children's memories, particularly around time and events. When Anna talked to the police prior to her father's arrest, she didn't say anything 
about the bathroom. She said that on that night, they drove her grandfather, Linda's father, to the Alaska Native Medical Center and dropped him off. They then went to the fireworks. She said her parents were arguing while they were in the car. After the fireworks, they picked Grandpa up and went home. Anna said her parents continued to argue at home, and she and her five-year-old brother went to bed. And we know this story is not what happened. Linda's father did not move in until after Linda went missing, so he was not living there on New Year's Eve. They did not take him to the medical center that night. They can prove that. And they didn't go home for the rest of the night after the fireworks, which is also proven. There is security footage of Linda being dropped off at the various downtown bars. It sounds like seven-year-old Anna is doing what kids do and confusing different events into one story. And this is yet another thing the investigation may have adjusted for had it started sooner. Anna was asked about the night of the fireworks two weeks later. Have you ever asked a seven-year-old what they did two weeks before? Even if you have a reference point, like the night you went to the fireworks, that may not be enough for a child. The story about her mother's feet and the blood all around is compelling because she places it in the bathroom, which is where we know blood was found. But because there was a time between when she may have seen this and when she disclosed it, it could also be a false memory. She may have overheard relatives discussing the case when they didn't realize she was listening, and she heard about the blood in the bathroom. Research has shown that children are more susceptible to false memories. But Anna's statement would make it into the trial. Another family member, Linda's birth mother, said that Thomas told her that they'll never find Linda, which she took as ominous. He also started openly dating someone immediately after Linda went missing, and it turned out to be someone he had been seeing during the marriage but it told Linda's family that Thomas knew Linda wasn't coming back. While an arrest was made quickly, it took a while for the case to make it to trial. Linda was reported missing on January 4th, 2016, and Thomas was arrested on January 20th. The trial occurred in February 2019, three years later. Thomas spent that entire time in pretrial detention, unable to make bail. The state's case was pretty much everything we talked about, and the defense was basically no body, no crime. The only forensic evidence was blood, but there was no telling how long it had been there. And it wasn't the amount of blood like we saw with the Jennifer Dulos case, where it was clearly fatal blood loss. This was a small amount of blood. The state also had some gaps in their story that the defense pounced on. There was no evidence of how Thomas got Linda's body out of the apartment. The kids didn't see anything, at least nothing they reported. There was no evidence in the SUV 
So while the state assumed he used the vehicle to take her body somewhere remote, they couldn't prove it. Not even a gas receipt in some rural town to show that Thomas went for a long drive. Nothing. The defense also called into question the neighbor's statements. They had Barbara, who heard the fight and the loud thud, but she had not quite told the story the same way every time over the previous three years. So they questioned her credibility. But the defense bolstered the statement of Tanya, the neighbor who saw Linda walking away from the home and Thomas in the doorway. So what if she got the time wrong? She saw Linda do exactly what Thomas said Linda did. The state tried to say that Tanya was mistaken on who she was talking to. The defense also pointed out how much evidence was lost when the police waited to investigate, but not evidence that would implicate Thomas, but rather clear him, like CCTV footage of Linda possibly walking around. Another thing the defense did was a little bit of victim blaming. They said it was Linda's choices that caused the delay in the investigation. It was her habit of disappearing on weekend benders that did this. If she didn't do that, she would have been reported missing sooner and the police would have taken it seriously sooner. Except the story of the regular weekend benders came from Thomas, who was presenting it in a self-serving manner. It was the reason he gave for why he didn't report her missing for days and why he thought she was staying away and out of touch on purpose. The defense was presenting it as though it was a fact and as though Linda did it so frequently that it made sense no one bothered looking for her right away. In spite of Linda's birth and foster families, both saying that from the start, something didn't seem right. So we have two stories about the likelihood Linda would have disappeared for the weekend, and each side is using the story that fits their theory. The defense told the jury that anything could have happened to Linda when she left the home. She could have been attacked by a stranger. She could have been injured and succumbed to exposure. She could have left of her own volition and was living happily ever after somewhere. Or she could have been hit by a drunk New Year's Eve driver who panicked and then hit her body. To say Thomas murdered her was as much speculation as any of these other explanations because there was simply not enough evidence to say which theory was the correct one. So the defense, instead of picking a single alternative theory, a single piece of reasonable doubt, they decided to introduce a lot of speculation into the conversation to equate that speculation with Thomas having murdered her as equally valid slash invalid. And it worked. The jury found Thomas Skeek not guilty. After he was processed through the detention system that day, he was released to move back home with his family. Thomas had spent three years in jail for a crime the state couldn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt he committed. 
So those who think the jury got it wrong might think, well, at least Thomas served some time in jail. But there is a bigger issue at play here. People spend extended periods on pretrial detention and get found not guilty all the time. Some are found guilty or plead guilty to lesser charges and are immediately released because they already spent more time locked up than the maximum sentence they could get. If people are innocent until proven guilty, what are we doing to reflect that before the trial? How long can we hold someone pending trial, treating them as though they're guilty? And what is the fair thing to do if they're found not guilty and released? There is no compensation for this, as far as I know, like some states will have for the wrongfully convicted. You just get released with the clothes on your back. Think about what you would lose in three years in jail. Three years of someone else raising your children. Would your job still be there? Who paid your mortgage or your rent while you were gone? Who paid your car payment? Three years in jail and you lose everything. And according to a jury of your peers, you're not guilty. But think about one year in detention or even three months. How much would you lose if you were held in pretrial detention for three months? There is a lot to think about, and this is something that's more of a conversation than just me talking at you. So feel free to sound off on social media about your thoughts on pretrial detention and if you think there should be compensation for those who are later found not guilty or Is this an acceptable quirk in our justice system? Let's take that conversation of social media and move on with the next case I want to talk about. It's another unsolved case that has affected the same family. Because while Thomas was waiting on trial, his family suffered a major loss when his youngest sister, Shirley, went missing. Shirley was 27 years old, and she lived in Anchorage. She had grown up in Cake, which is one of the Alaska Native villages we talked about earlier. It was actually the first to organize under federal law giving U.S. citizenship to all of the residents, who were primarily Tlingit people in the tribe Kikwan. Shirley was the youngest of the six Skeek children, and she did great in school growing up, always made good grades. She was very sweet, and when she was 14, she started working in a youth program. She really liked to help people. Things seemed to be going really well for Shirley until she hit her late teens. Her family became worried about her behavior, and not behavior she could control. It appeared Shirley was dealing with a psychiatric problem. As Shirley's condition worsened, she moved to Juneau to live with her sister Amy. She needed a lot of care and supervision, even though she was a young adult. She was finally diagnosed with schizophrenia. With medication, Shirley did great. Schizophrenia is a treatable condition. Without medication, she could barely function day to day. And though Shirley was able to get the medication she needed in Juneau, what she really needed was more regular medical monitoring and behavioral therapy, things they were not able to access locally. So the decision was made for Shirley to move to Anchorage 
in her mid-twenties where there are far more resources. Shirley's mental health was complicated by substance abuse. The comorbidity of schizophrenia and drug use has been studied and researched. There is ongoing research largely to try to find the root of it. And in all this research, it has been consistently shown that substance abuse in psychosis is associated with poorer outcomes like increased psychotic symptoms and poorer treatment compliance. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Shirley lived in Anchorage for about three years. She would regularly call home, particularly to her sister Amy. Shirley talked by phone to someone in her family pretty much daily and often a couple times a day. On January 2nd, 2019, Shirley was reported missing to the police. Her sister Amy, who is who she called the most, hadn't heard from her in a while and called around to the family. They compared notes and realized the last time anyone had heard from Shirley was about two weeks before. Shirley Skeek was reported missing three years almost to the day after her sister-in-law, Linda, had been reported missing. The investigation showed that the last time anyone in Anchorage had seen Shirley was in mid-December 2018, when she got into a black truck outside of Beans Cafe. Beans Cafe is a place that serves three meals a day, free of charge, all year round. While many of their clients are homeless, that is not a requirement. If you need a meal, they will feed you. It's also considered a day shelter where people can relax for the day inside, watch TV, rest, whatever they need. It's really an amazing place and an amazing service, and Shirley would spend time there. One of their core principles is that everyone is treated with dignity, regardless of their sobriety, mental health, or anything else they may feel judged for in other spaces. Another thing the investigation showed that was prior to this last sighting of Shirley at Bean's Cafe, Shirley missed a few medical appointments. This meant she was very likely off her medication at the time of her disappearance. She would have been incredibly vulnerable, and it would have been obvious to people from the outside. Eleven months after she was reported missing in December, the family was informed that investigators had matched a set of remains to Shirley's basic description, and they were going to use dental records to compare. The body had been found back in May, about 75 miles from where Shirley was last seen in Anchorage. The remains were not found whole, and they were unable to recover all of them. However, it has not been released if this was because they had been dismembered or if animal activity is why they were not all found. Dental records did confirm the match to Shirley Skeek. The remains that were found were sent to Texas for forensic testing, and the manner of death has been determined to be homicide. But the suspected cause of death has not been released. There hasn't been a lot more released on the investigation into Shirley's death in general. 
While looking into this case, I found two other murders that had some connections. They were both Alaska Native women who went missing in 2018 and 2019, so the same time frame, and both were known to frequent Beans Cafe. It was actually searching up more information on Beans Cafe that led me to articles about these other two murders. One man has been charged with both of those murders, and he has confessed. This is a case I may cover in a full-length episode after the trial, but I want to give everyone an overview. On September 30th, 2019, a woman found a memory card in the street labeled Homicide at Midtown Marriott. She turned it into the police, and it contained, as advertised, images of a woman being murdered at a hotel. There were both stills and video, and the video was graphic, showing the woman being beaten viciously and then strangled. From what I understand, the man's face is not seen, but he did speak, and this gave police a major clue. The man's South African accent was rather unusual for Alaska, and someone recognized it. The police had already dealt with this man in a past investigation, so when an officer heard the voice on the video, it was connected to Brian Stephen Smith. They have not said what the other investigation was for. Smith was not in Alaska at the time his voice was recognized. He had traveled out of state, so they continued the investigation while monitoring his movements. Two or three days after the card was found, a woman's body was found on the Seward Highway, which is the same highway where Shirley's body was found, but around 40 minutes away. The woman was identified as 30-year-old Kathleen Jo Henry, and she was the woman on the SD card. They found out that Smith had checked into the hotel in Anchorage in early September, which is when they believe the murder occurred. The police arrested Smith when he returned to Alaska. He confessed to the killing, and then he confessed to another murder, that of 52-year-old Veronica Abichuk, who was last seen at Beans Cafe in 2018. Smith told the police where he left Veronica's body, and it was an area where a skull had been found six months before, but never identified. With this lead, they pulled Veronica's dental records and confirmed it was her. Kathleen and Veronica were both Yupik women from remote towns who moved to Anchorage for more opportunities, but found themselves struggling with housing instability. A similar story as Shirley Skeeks. It is possible there was a racist element to these crimes. Smith's social media posts expressed racist views of Africans, and there are investigations underway into his past in South Africa. He was only in the U.S. for a few years, and the fear is that he has gotten away with murders in his home country. It's also possible that Smith targeted Kathleen and Veronica because he thought those who would go to Beans Cafe wouldn't be the type of people who had loved ones missing them. But he couldn't be more wrong. Both women have families 
who are devastated by these losses. Brian Stephen Smith has not been named a suspect, a person of interest, anything in Shirley's murder, and he has not, as far as we know, confessed to it. Veronica went missing around October 2018, Shirley in December 2018, and Kathleen in September 2019. So this is in that same time period. They were also all three left in a way that they were found. They weren't buried or hidden, even though Alaska offers plenty of spaces where you could hide a body that would not be found. They were all left where they were found within a few months. But unfortunately, there are more awful people out there who prey on the vulnerable, and it is possible there is a second killer involved in Shirley's murder. And anyone with information regarding Shirley Skeek's murder, you are asked to call Crime Stoppers at 907 561 7867. And Linda Skeek remains missing. She is 5 foot 10 and 200 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She was last seen wearing a black coat, red vest, red skirt, and high heels. If you have any information, call the Anchorage Police Department at 907-786-8900. The red Linda was wearing when she went missing really stood out as it's the color for the movement for missing and murdered indigenous women. And this color was not chosen arbitrarily. In some tribes, red is believed to be the only color spirits can see. The red is calling the spirits of the women and girls back so that they can be laid to rest. So when you see the red dress or the red shirt, know that it's not just a message of advocacy to the world. It's a beacon to call the women home. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Crime Lines True Crime. Crime Lines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. I also live stream two or three times a month on Get Vocal. To see my upcoming live stream schedule, follow the Get Vocal link in the show notes. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.